Good morning, brothers. Yes, I know that Georgia is out of money. It's, um, it's, it's more expensive than it used to be to have a, college, a good college football team. And uh, speaking as an Auburn fan, the $180,000 we spent on Cam Newton was the best money we ever spent, right? We've got a, got a good run out of it, but... Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. We have looked at the superiority of Christ, our mediator, over Melchizedek. We have said that God intentionally created Melchizedek as an example, as a, as a foreshadowing of the kind of mediator Christ would be, and Christ far, uh, 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 was far better than, was far superior than Melchizedek. And then we talked about the old covenant and the characteristics of it, and we're going to continue in that, but this time with the architecture of the tabernacle. Remember in the Old Testament, as the children of Israel were wandering around, they didn't build a temple in one place. That would come later uh, after they had settled the land. They had a tabernacle. And it's this tabernacle to which uh, the writer of Hebrews is appealing. There, uh, there is a temple built there at the time, but some of its architectural features are a little different from the tabernacle. The tabernacle is what Old Testament Israel would be most fond of. Herod uh, provided his own touches to this magnificent structure that we have the base of, only the base of now, the Temple Mount, but on the top of that Temple Mount was a, a smallish box which contained the Holy of Holies and then outside of it the various courts. So in a moment, I'm going to show you the architecture, show you some pictures of the tabernacle. We'll get to that in due time so that you can kind of visualize the imagery that the writer of Hebrews is using to make this point of the superior nature of Christ's mediation, His salvation, His redemption, His bringing us very, very near, intimately near into the very presence of God. So with the anticipation that God is freshly going to impress His gospel on us, let's look at chapter 9, verse 1 of Hebrews. <clears throat> Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that is the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, that's the holy of holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, 
and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. Brothers, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that in this your word, you would bridge the gap for us of our own sinful unwillingness to understand. We also pray that you would bridge the cultural gap for us as we look back into, into Old Testament culture and Old Testament practices that are entirely unfamiliar to us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see with our understanding and hearts to embrace what we finally do get, and that we would not leave here the same men that we have entered. Some of us would leave converted. Others of us would leave freshly encouraged. Others who have been in the far country would be drawn back, and still others who have claimed you for many years and have, are indeed Christians but have never realized that you, their heavenly Father, welcomes them to your knee, that this would be the day of newfound intimacy and fellowship with you through Jesus Christ. We pray it all in the strong name of Jesus and for his sake. And God's people said, amen. I want you to think back for a moment to your high school English class. might be traumatic for some of you. But... um, Think back to Shakespeare, Macbeth, one we probably all studied. And, and uh, Lady Macbeth was a driven woman, right? She wanted her husband to be the exclusive king, and she, she pushed him and pushed him until he finally killed the Scottish king, Duncan. But it troubles her. It plagues her conscience. The the action that she thought would finally bring her peace because they would have the realm securely under their rule, the guilt of the crime, the guilt of the murder plagues her. You remember that scene as she's constantly sleepwalking? They say she's hallucinating, but it's her conscience burning its way out of her, and she walks around incessantly rubbing her palm. Out, damned spot, out, I say. Out, damned spot. What is she rubbing? It's a spot, they say. Oh, no, there's nothing in her hand. What is she rubbing? Out, damned spot, out. It's her conscience. Some of you, I would suspect, uh, do that in a metaphorical way every day. There is that spot in your conscience, that one sin, maybe several, but in my experience, it seems to be that one sin 
And um, if you were to share it with your neighbor at your table today, it's likely that your neighbor would say, boy, I would give anything for that sin if you only knew what my sin was. You know, St. Augustine had that issue. St. Augustine in his, <clears throat> his confessions, Augustine was a, an African bishop in, in, uh, in the fourth century, and uh, he wrote, uh, he found it necessary to, he wrote an autobiography, <clears throat> but he called it Confessions. It's one long confession of what he thought, what he did, what he said as he was uh, coming into the faith. And the sin that caused him more guilt than any other was now, you know, he had done some, he had done some bad things. He had, he had, he had uh, dallied in, in, uh, in pagan religion and, and, uh, and uh, uh, even entertained, you know, foreign or, or idols or pagan gods. He was, uh, he was, he was taken with, with Roman life and its uh, sexual exploitation. He had he'd done it all. But the thing that caused him more guilt than anything else was uh, the memory that he and some buddies had gone to a neighbor's house and stolen pears from their tree and uh, then destroyed them. And he said what caused him pain of conscience more than anything else is that they did it for the pure evil of it. So to your neighbor, your sin may think, you, your neighbor may say, well, silly, I wish I had stolen some pears as opposed to what I did. But in your conscience, you know that what you did, you did for the pure evil of it. And no matter what you do, and no matter what you try on your own, you can't rid yourself of that damned spot. And the writer of Hebrews is talking to people just like you and me. They lived a long time ago, but they are people with damned spots. And he said, here, here is the cure. In Jesus. Now he does it in a very clever way. He 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 gives us a, an introduction. He reminds he's reminding these these Jewish people of the architecture of the of the temple, but uh, he makes uh, two points that follow from this one proposition. The proposition is: if you want relief from guilt, you must look to Christ's better news. The gospel is not just news, it's not just good news, it's the best news. And if you want relief from your damned spot, you'll only find it in Christ. So the writer says, here is the cure for hyperactivity and here is the cure for a guilty conscience. The first, what is the cure for hyperactivity? By that I mean, what is, what is the cure for all of this endless struggle you are making to right the wrongs from your past. All of these actions, these things you're doing, these things that you think that you can by somehow tip the scale and make God favor you. 
You have to realize, first of all, verses 1 through 5, there is no direct access to God by any of your activities. By your actions, by your activities, by your good works, you will never find direct access to God. And God makes that point powerfully clear in the construction, the architecture of the Old Testament tent, the Old Testament tabernacle. Now, to, to, to introduce that tabernacle to you, I'm going I'm to show you that in this text itself, the writer outlines the tabernacle. With his words, with the construction of verses 1 through 5, he draws a picture of the tabernacle. Let me explain how he's going to do that. He's first of all going to talk about the outside, and then he's going to move to the inside, and then he's going to move directly to the middle. Now, in the past, I've talked to you about chiasmus. That's a, in, the, in Greek, there is a, a letter that looks like an X, so some of your fraternities had this in it, this key. Uh, my, my daughter is a chi omega. That's an X and an omega. So it's an X. And the, the key, a chiasmus describes the structure of a Hebrew poem or an artistic device in Hebrew to make a point. And it's like this. It's, it's like the, the, the main point is in the middle where the two bars cross. And then there is a, there's a statement up here at the beginning of the paragraph, and it's reflected down here and the, at the other end of the paragraph. And then slightly in is another statement over here, you might imagine, on the X, and another one down here. But all four point to one point. So think of it another way, like a sandwich. You got a piece of bread, one point. Another piece of bread, it mirrors the first point. And then the main point is in the middle, that's the meat. All right? So in verses 1 through 5, we have a chiasmus. On the outside, the outside of the taber tabernacle is described in verses 1 and five, and the, and the inside of the tabernacle is described in verses 2 and 4. And the precise middle, the main point that he wants to make is in verse 3. All right? So I'm not going to tell you all of that yet. I'm not going to give you all the furniture yet, but just get with me so far. One and five, the outside of the text, that's the outside of the tabernacle, slightly in is the inside, verses 2 and 4, and the main point that he's going to make is in verse 3, all right? So let's talk about the outside of the tabernacle, the outside in verses 1 and 2. What does he say uh, is there? He says, a tent was prepared, the first section, in which the lamp stand, the table, and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Now, do we have that? There's three things out there. If you get up to the, as you approach the, as you approach the tent, the tabernacle, there is a, there's an initial curtain. There's a door that you come into. And this is, you might say, as a vestibule. 
And here is the, the first thing you bump into is an altar. And you're not going to get any farther. You're not going to get any closer to God without going through that altar. And you've got to schlep an animal up there and kill it, slit its throat, and cover it with blood. And then if you do that, you can move a little closer. And then there is the table of showbread. That's the 12 loaves that the priest would change out every day representing the 12 tribes of Israel, saying, okay, the people of God belong here. They've made their sacrifice. They can come a little closer. And then there is the, the lampstand, which represents the presence of God. And then there is the table of incense. Now, it's a little bit confusing in the text because it can sound like the table of incense is on the inside of the Holy of Holies, but that's, we know that's not true. All of this is out in the vestibule. And the last thing before the Holy of Holies is the table of incense. So he would pour some sweet-smelling something or another on the altar. It would burn. It would it'd make smoke. And it would fill the area with sweet-smelling uh, sweet fragrance and smoke. And that represented prayer. So here's the visual imagery. You come in. Oops, I can't go any farther without atoning without sacrificing for my sins. I go farther, oh, this tells me I'm the people of God. And then uh, the presence of God is here, I can tell by the light. Now, having my sins atoned for, satisfied, made the sacrifice, I can offer my prayers. But that's as far as I get. There's another curtain four inches thick that divides the holy of holies. Are you with me so far? All right, let's look at the, let's look at the graph, see if we can get it in front of us. Sorry. I'll go back to that. So here's the, here's the tent up at the top, and you see that red there at the bottom. That's the that's the curtain. That you, that's the curtain, going into the, into the uh, holy place. And here's the guy coming with his bull. He's got to sacrifice it, and then he goes in farther. And there's, uh, let's go to the next slide. Here's the golden lampstand, the light I talked about, the table of show, <coughs> showbread, and the altar of incense, and that's all in this. Outside, so the main thing you want to get is there's this straight, there's this this lineup of furniture that to, that that you must go through to get close to God, and it's all obstructive too. So that's the outside. Now the inside, he goes on to say, so the holy the holy of holies, we're in the holy place. That's the 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 vestibule, the. The high priest, only the high priest, once a year could go farther. Look down in verses, uh, uh, the end of verse 3. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above were the cherubim of 
glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak in detail. He's not trying to keep a secret. He's just saying there's a whole lot there I got to talk about, but that's, I don't want you to get bogged down in the details. I just want you to get the big picture. So we've moved from the vestibule now to the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year. You can read about that in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. And we've talked about it on occasion here. That once a year, the high priest would take two goats and he would slaughter one and he would, he would, uh, he would, he would pour that blood out and that was a symbol of the blood necessary to atone for the children of Israel's sins. Then he would put his hands on the other goat called the scapegoat and he would shoo that one away and the image was that God was taking your sins away even as that goat disappeared. But before he could go into the, into the Holy of Holies, he had to kill a goat for his own sin and for his people's sin. And we've encountered that already, that you need a mediator better than that. That mediator always had to atone for his own sins too. You needed a sinless mediator. That's who Christ was. So he would atone, he would make a sacrifice for his sin. And then he would go into the curtain this four-inch thick curtain decorated with cherubim and gold threads and so forth. He would go behind it, and there was the Ark of the Covenant, a box that's three feet nine inches long and two feet three inches wide and two feet three inches tall, covered in gold. The gold, as we know from Scripture, is, is symbolic of the highest standard of perfection, the gold standard. This is God's standard of righteousness. And it, it's a box. You take the lid off, it has some things in it, remembering, reminding the people of Israel of their past. There's an urn for one of manna. The manna, remember God in the Old Testament had to feed his people and he rained down bread from heaven. So they're remembering you know, just as God had to bring us bread from heaven, He has to bring us salvation from heaven. And how did Jesus identify Himself as the bread of heaven? And then in that uh, ark, there was also the the uh, the staff, Aaron's staff, uh, and it was an almond staff. And there was a miracle in the Old Testament. They were wondering who is supposed to be the high priest. And uh, they said, to put all your staffs together, put all your walking sticks together, and which one, whichever one of them blooms, that's the one who's supposed to be the high priest, and Aaron's rod bloomed. And that rod was put in the, in the, in the box too, and it's, it reminded them there is going to be, there's only one high, there's only one priest. And then there are the tablets of the law, where God says, the, the gold standard of righteousness is defined in the law. This is what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be perfectly com conformed to my character, and my character is defined in the law. So you get the imagery that's there swirling around in the Holy of Holies. And on top of the, the box, 
with those that stuff in it, symbolizing the one mediator, the gold standard of righteousness, the, the, the objective standard of righteousness in the law, that salvation has to come down from, from heaven. On top of it are the cherubim, those, those angels with outstretched wings. And remember, the place where they touch is called what? The mercy seat. And, and the, the picture is that God comes down. If all the conditions are met, God comes down and he sits there and communes with his people. But what is necessary for him to come down and sit there, it is that those wings, that mercy seat, is covered with the blood of one of those goats. So that, so that as God looks down from heaven, he looks through that mercy seat, through the blood, and he sees his people in relationship to the law only through that blood only through the filter of that blood. So we have the outside, the vestibule. You've got to get through the altar. You've got you to be one of the people of God. You've got to be in the place where God is. And then you can make your prayers, but you still are not going to have immediate access to him. You have to have a high priest who can get there. And that's not always guaranteed because that high priest could make a mistake God could strike him dead. If you don't hear little bells ringing on his, on his robe anymore, you have a rope tied to his leg, you drag him out and you send in another high priest. It's a risky business. So you have the outside, verses 1 and 5. We move to the inside, the Holy of Holies, all to make the main point. Look in verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section. He very artistically, architecturally, linguistically makes this point. <clears throat> There's the outside, inside. He could only get so close. But God dropped a four-inch curtain between himself and you. And that four-inch curtain represented the impossibility of your working your way into good favor with him. If you were not of the tribe of, you could be one of the members of the 12 tribes of Israel, but not of the tribe of Levi, not of the Aaronic priesthood, and not chosen to be the high priest that year, you would never get through that curtain. There is no way... For you, no matter how good a, you know, how many times you change out that showbread, no matter how good a little boy you are around on the temple grounds, no matter how many of the laws you keep, there is no way you could bust through that curtain. And there is no way, brothers, that you, by any number of good deeds, there's no way you're going to erase that damned spot. There's no way by your efforts, you can be, you can be Phi Beta Kappa, you can be uh, in young life, you can be a Boy Scout, you can be an Eagle Scout, you can be the husband of one wife, you can never mess around with anybody else, you could be a good dad, you could be a little league coach, you can be entirely honest in your business and do all of that perfectly to the end. But it will never 
get you into fellowship with God. There's a curtain. The curtain of God's perfect righteousness divides you because there is still at least one damned spot. Maybe you recognize it, maybe you don't. But it is a spot on your record that will literally damn you if you try to solve it yourself. Are you with me? So what does the, the writer say? He says, <clears throat> we got to get rid of that curtain. And while he doesn't go there in the text, we know what happened to the curtain. On the day Jesus died, Matthew 27 tells us, the curtain was torn. From what direction? By people going, going up there and saying, we're tired of this curtain, and they rip it from the bottom up. We're tired of God excluding us. We're going to bust our way into the Holy of Holies. No. And upon Jesus' death, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. That's the text. That's the detail that the Holy Spirit wants us to hear. God tore that curtain because he sent his manna from heaven. His gold standard, the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only died in our place but lived in our place. He perfectly kept the law. He was the perfect high priest. He made the perfect one and only final all-sufficient sacrifice. And when that sacrifice had been accepted, God tore the curtain and said, all who receive him come to me. All right, that's the first point. And I think, I don't know if I've even confused my, my new clicker, but um, apparently I <laughs> We have no direct access to God except through Jesus Christ and God who sovereignly tears the curtain from top to bottom. Now the second point. We not only need this <clears throat> objective cure for our sins, we need to be relieved from this, this idea that we can work off our guilt. We need relief in our consciences, don't we? You know, I've met uh, a lot of people through the, through the years who, uh, who uh, talk about forgiving themselves. You've heard that? Maybe you've paid a lot of money for uh, a psychotherapist to tell you you've got to forgive yourself. I remember a meeting with a, a man in uh, Augusta who, who was um, in a different religion. It was a very moral religion. And I think some, some tragedy had come to his family. I think uh, somebody had uh, uh, actually killed a child. And you can imagine, I mean, can you, you can't imagine the, the pain of that and how angry and, uh, you would be or somebody uh, abused your child. But he was, he was very excited, and he, he, he came to meet with me to tell me about this new thing he had discovered that he was excited about, and it was called forgiveness. And uh, <clears throat> he had figured out the power of forgiving somebody else. And when we, when we and I didn't argue with him, I'm not going to, I gave him my view of the gospel, but. But uh, what he was basically saying is, I found a way to cope with my anger and even my guilt 
by forgiving that person. And it was a strategy. It was a diversionary strategy. If I can lift, if I can make, exalt myself to the point that I can forgive somebody else, then I make myself feel better about myself. Or if I can coax myself, so that's the way it deals with enemies, but if I can, if I've committed my own sin and I can find these ways of forgiving myself, then I'm going to feel better. But what happens in the in the still of the night, when nobody's around. You don't have access to the music that cues you to forgive yourself, or you don't have, you're not in so much control of your rational thinking that you can try to override the way you're feeling. What happens in the still of the night? You blame yourself. You have no relief from conscience. The damned spot is still there. And so the writer of Hebrews says, this, this gospel is the best news because it, um, it has relief for the conscience. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. What was true of the old, the old covenant? They were constantly making sacrifices. You could never get relief from your conscience because the the priest was always reminding you there's more, more blood needed, more animals needed, more animals needed for this sin, that sin, more uh, sacrifices needed every day, every week, especially once a year. There's no chair in the tabernacle furniture because the priest's work was never done. And as long as you are trying to forgive yourself, your work will never be done. You're going to constantly have to, 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 to mask your sin, find some kind of diversion. It will never, ever be finished. Secondly, he said that, uh, that the old covenant was hidden. The good news was hidden. The good news of intimacy with God, favored relationship with God, acceptance with God, the Holy of Holies being able to see the mercy seat, to see the blood, to see the presence of God hovering over the ark saying, okay, it is atoned for. The, only one man could see that every year. It was hidden. And then thirdly, he says in verses 9 and 10, it was completely ineffective to erase the guilt of the conscience. Sacrifices offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So what's the answer? The answer is the perfect mediator. The perfect mediator Christ who says upon offering his sacrifice, chapter 10, he sat down at the right hand of God. Meaning for the first time ever in history, a priest sits down because the work is finally finished. He not only rips the curtain from top to bottom, look, who could see it? Nobody could see it, but the, the priests who had access at least into the, into the vestibule, they could see it, but God wanted to make sure it was no longer a hidden fact that he had opened his way into the Holy of Holies. He had opened the way into intimate, favored relationship with himself. So what else did he do at the day of crucifixion? Not only did he tear the curtain from top to bottom, he caused an earthquake. Everybody could feel it. 
He also opened the tombs and caused the faithful to get up out of the tombs and walk around. People saw resurrected souls, resurrected bodies. God was saying, it's no longer how I'm shouting it from the mountaintops. The work is finished. The way has been made to me. I have pulled the curtain, by pulling the curtain out of the middle of the temple, I have pulled the stick in the Jenga game, and I have caused the whole tower to collapse. The way has been opened to me, and it is totally effective. It is effective even to cleanse your conscience. It is possible when you believe that Jesus Christ has once for all satisfied your sins and said to you, you are forgiven, you are forgiven. And in the still of the night, you can have your conscience relieved. And this is the story, not just of the New Testament, it's the story of the whole Bible. It's what the Holy Spirit, when the text says, this is what the Holy Spirit was trying to tell us, he makes the point, that the Holy Spirit has from creation with the fall of Adam been pointing the whole Old Testament people of God through their architecture, through their prophets, through their wandering in the wilderness, through the blood of goats and, and bulls, always saying there's only one mediator, only one Lamb of God who can satisfy for your sins objectively according to God's law and in your conscience. This is what Archbishop Thomas Cranmer had to say about the single purpose of God in redemptive history. Only this difference was between the Old Testament believers and us. That our redemption by Christ's death and passion was then only promised. And now it is performed and passed. And as their sacraments were figures of his death to come, so be ours figures of the same now, past and gone. And yet it was all but one, Christ to them and us who gave life, comfort, and strength to them by his death to come and giveth the same to us by his death past. He's saying that the Old Testament saint could look through these sacrifices and say, this is not working, but God said righteousness would come to me. God promised a lamb, and he could look forward through it and say, God is going to provide the lamb that will satisfy my objective need for righteousness and my conscience. And the only difference between the comfort they received and the comfort we receive is that we just see it with greater clarity. But the relief is the same. God justifies sinners by the substitution of his righteous lamb whose blood was once for all spilt in our place. And upon our receiving it, we may know that our sins are forgiven. And he gives us his sacraments and weekly worship, not so that we can earn more favor, not so that we can work our way back to him, but so that he can remind us in our weak consciences of what is actually true. So back to Lady Macbeth. Many years ago, Dr. Joseph Cook was asked to participate in a comparative religions conference. And he was on a platform like this, and there was a, a Muslim and a Hindu and a Buddhist, and he, of course, was the representative of, of Christianity. 
and they had each represented their religion and the, the key tenets of their religion. And, and what is every religion except a way to make yourself right with God, and they're all works-based. Dr. Cook was the last to speak, and he came forward with just this simple image. He said, let me introduce to you Lady Macbeth. Here she is on stage with us. She's walking around uh, with, her, uh, with her eyes uh, blood red from her hallucination. She's constantly sleepwalking, and she's rubbing a spot on her palm. Out, damned spot, out, I say. And he turns to the Buddhists, and he says, what solution does your religion offer for Lady Macbeth? And to the Muslim, what solution did Islam offer for Lady Macbeth, murders and unforgivable sin? And to the Hindu, what does your religion offer for Lady Macbeth? And the participants were silent. But Dr. Cook said, Christianity has the solution. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. And I say to you, brothers, whatever that damned spot is in your conscience, your hyperactivity is not going to cure it. And your self-forgiveness is never going to cure it. But the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses all sins will.